Amen. Thank you, Mike. If you have a Bible, open with me, please, to the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, and we'll be looking today at verses 6 through 9. This is kind of a part 2 to Peter's introduction, if you will. His greeting and introduction extend from verses 1 through verse 9, and then he kind of launches into the, the meat of this epistle. So, We'll look at verses 6 through 9 today, and the title of the sermon is Rejoicing in Christ. Rejoicing in Christ. Uh, I want to go ahead and read our text, so we'll pick up at verse 3 to kind of set a little bit of context here, and read through verse 9, and then we need to ask the Lord's help and His blessing in our time of studying His Word, and then we'll dive in. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is the word of the living God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of of your souls. This is the word of God. Now let's go before him in prayer. Father, we come to you and Lord, it's in moments like right now that we are reminded of our weakness and frailty. For we are physically weak And we are spiritually weak, if not for your grace being poured out in and upon our lives. Lord, as we consider the idea of the various trials and tribulations of life, as we will consider the calling to rejoice in Christ and to be faithful to Christ, Lord, we cannot help but to throw ourselves upon your grace. For the task of standing up amidst trials is something that we cannot do. Your word is clear that your grace is perfected in our weakness. Your grace is sufficient in our weakness. And Lord, we even acknowledge right now that we are weak. We are of weak mind and dull hearts often. Lord, would you revive our hearts this day as we look to the glorious and comforting truths of your word. 
Lord, I ask that your spirit would, would help us, would help our minds to be attentive and our hearts to be truly humbled before your word. Lord, would you break up the hard and stony grounds that is so often present in the hearts of men? And when the soil of our hearts are ready, would you plant your word? Would you cause your word to bear fruit? Lord, sanctify us in the truth, for it is your word that is the source of all truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we are completely dependent on you to work. If your spirit does not move, then we have gathered in vain. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are eager and ready to receive and apply the truth. Lord, I pray that you would receive all honor and glory and praise in our time today, for you, O Lord, are worthy. You are great and greatly to be praised. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, a hope that does not disappoint, a hope that is sure and fixed and imperishable and undefiled, that is reserved and protected in heaven for your beloved. Lord, would you shine your truth in our hearts today for your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen. So you may recall from last week as we looked at the first part of Peter's introduction that we saw that the Lord has this inherent glory. Peter said in verse 3, Blessed be, glorified be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again who has brought us from death to a living hope in Christ. In God, there is inherent glory, and that glory is in part revealed in his plan and operation of salvation. The Lord is glorified in salvation. We saw that we have a glorious inheritance that the Lord has promised those of us who are in Christ. We looked at the salvation that these dear saints knew in verses 1 through 2. Peter lays out God's choice, his applying the work through the Spirit, the blood being poured out by Christ. We saw the glorious salvation that we as saints of God know. And when you couple that salvation with the glory of God in verse 3 and the inheritance of the saints that we have and and looked at in verses 4 and 5, you have the undergirding power and strength behind saints enduring hardship. You recall that Peter is writing to suffering saints, to a suffering church, to various suffering churches, and he begins by reminding them of the Lord's glory and his goodness and his kindness in salvation. We do not suffer without hope. We do not suffer without strength that God supplies. We do not suffer in vain, for the Lord uses our suffering to conform us to the image of Christ. We suffer with hope because we have an eternal hope that will be ultimately and perfectly 
and eternally realized when the Lord calls us home to heaven. With that in mind, we move forward then to verses 6 through 9, where Peter gives this very clear exhortation. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. He calls saints in all places at all times to rejoice in Christ no matter the circumstances. We rejoice because we can see through this text and through other scriptures that the one who walks rightly with Christ through, tr- through trial and tribulation proves the genuineness of their salvation. You are not saved because you endure trial, but you are able to endure trials because the Lord has saved you. Peter exhorts his readers to rejoice in suffering because suffering produces sanctification. The Lord uses trials to make us holy, to wean us off the cares and the desires of the world, to burn off the dross of the world, to give us a more eternal mindset, because that eternal mindset is how we resist sin and temptation. So Peter says, rejoice, stand firm. We, we know when we, when we think about rejoicing and standing firm, we know ultimately that to do that, we must fix our eyes upon Christ. That is woven into these verses. It's woven throughout this entire epistle of Peter that we look to Christ as our example and as our strength while we suffer. Hebrews 12, 2 says that we must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Dear saints, we must endure the crosses that the Lord allows us to carry in this life by looking to Jesus. We must rejoice in Christ if we are to endure suffering. So again, the primary exhortation of this text is really crystal clear. I'd like to set out kind of a central proposition, a main thesis before we embark on a journey through a text, and it is that we rejoice in Christ in all circumstances. Very simple, just a few words, rejoice in Christ in all circumstances. We know that there's a primary means to doing this. We know that we have a great high priest, a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, who offers us grace and help in our time of need. So we Rejoice in Christ by looking to Christ and by remaining in Christ. Peter sets forth three exhortations, I think, of how we do this, why we do this, and then he kind of gives an ultimate summary in verse 9 where he talks about receiving our salvation. So let's begin in verse 6 and look at the, the idea of rejoicing greatly through trials. Rejoicing greatly through trials. Verse 6, in this you greatly Rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So in speaking of the joy of salvation, Peter really points back to what he showed them in verses 3 through 5. In this, you greatly rejoice. In this salvation, in this inheritance, in this promise that you are kept and protected By God, Jesus said that no one can snatch us out of his hand, and his Father has given us to him, and no one is able to snatch us from the Father's hand. You are guarded, protected, and kept in salvation. And Peter says that in that, 
in that hope you greatly rejoice. But what is that rejoicing? What does it really look like in the life of a believer to rejoice greatly in all things? I think it's really simple in a way. To, to rejoice is to have a spirit of happiness. We talked about joy in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the spirit. It's having a spirit of happiness that is displayed in the outward expression of happiness and joy. It's really very simple. Now, that does not mean that you'll walk around every moment of every day with a smile on your face. There are difficulties in life. The Lord knows and understands that. That is not what He expects. But what the Lord does expect and command of us as believers is that you have a spirit of joy, and that spirit of joy is manifest in your life. You live as one who has eternal hope. You live as one whose sin has been forgiven. You rejoice because the eternal wrath of a holy God has been poured out on Christ on your behalf. Christ became a curse for you. The punishment has been levied. The price has been paid. Your eternal redemption has been bought. And Peter says, in that you greatly rejoice. In that you stand firm in the storms and the trials of life because you have a fixed eternal hope. I ask this question, and I hope that our relationships outside of this interaction will, will help you understand the, the loving nature of this question. But when you consider what has been done for your salvation, the price that has been paid and the hope you have, dear friend, what more do you need to be joyful? What more must the Lord do for you for you to be filled with a spirit of joy? Joy is a defining mark of followers of Christ. I think in some ways we could even go as far, we have to be careful, but in some ways we go as far as to say that joy is the defining mark of those in Christ. Because when you know what the Lord has done, when you know that these 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years are just a, a blink of an eye. They're like a vapor here now and gone in an instant. And you have eternity with Christ because Christ went to the cross to bear your sins in his body so that you could die to sin and be made righteous through him. When you consider that, what more do you need to be joyful what more do you need the Lord to do to cause you to rejoice greatly? Now, this is not a fake joy. This is not a superficial joy. This is even not a shallow joy, and that's where we have to be careful and understand this rightly to apply the truth here. This is a deeply rooted joy, a joy that flows out of the heart and is then displayed and manifest in the way that you live and act and respond to other people. This is a deep joy because it is a lasting joy. We know as we walk through the fires and trials of life that these trials will one day come to an end. This life, dear friends, will one day come to an end. And the completion of this life for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, the completion of this life means that you are transferring from your temporary home on this earth to your eternal home in heaven. 
And in that, we greatly rejoice. Now with that, there are three descriptors that Peter uses here as he instructs and exhorts these people to rejoice greatly in trials. And these descriptions, as we really look at them, I think they can be a source of great encouragement. They can be a source of great strength as we consider the the implications of what Peter says here. So he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. Now for a little while. Now if you've ever walked through a trial, you can attest to the fact that as you are in the throes of hardship, you may have despaired and said, this trial is never going to end. And frankly and quite honestly, some of the trials of life will not end in this life. Some of the hardships that we suffer will be with us until the day that the Lord calls us home. But here, dear saint, what he says, these, tri- these trials are now and they are for a little while. This life is temporary. The, the feelings that we have as we suffer, I think, can be akin to what the author of Hebrews talks about when he writes of the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 11 says that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As we suffer, the trials are not joyful but are sorrowful. But as we walk through trial and tribulation, We know the nearness of God. If if we are walking rightly with him through hardship, we know the nearness of God in a way that you would never know the Lord had he not brought the trial into your life. So while it's not joyful, the, the fruit that suffering yields is a nearness of God that you cannot experience otherwise. So we must cling to the Lord through trials. We must know that when we are at our weakest, when when our strength is completely failing, the Lord never grows weary. The Lord never leaves your side. And this suffering is but for a little while. It's a short, fixed duration. Fixed and known only by the Lord. You don't know how long it will last. But the duration of your trial is fixed. Your suffering will come to an end. Peter doesn't stop there. He continues, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary. If necessary. MacArthur is helpful here. He said that Peter speaks of the fact that trials come when they serve a purpose in a believer's life. If the suffering is necessary, the trial will come. There is no such thing as a random trial. As Sproul would say, if there there is one particle in the entire universe that is rogue or random, then God is not sovereign. And so it is with our trials and suffering. there, There is no random trial. These are deemed necessary by the sovereign, the holy, and the all-knowing God, the God who is full of all wisdom and knowledge and insight. He deems in your life that this suffering is necessary. What are some of the purposes? Why why are trials necessary in our lives? Well, we could go person by person and probably 
find a trial in your life, and, and if we took a long enough time to discuss, we could get to the root of maybe why the Lord is bringing this. Sometimes we can't, but there's some overarching principles in Scripture of why trials are necessary. Think about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he wrote of that thorn in the flesh. We, we see that the purpose of his trials were to humble him. So trials humble us. Trials show us our weakness. Trials show us that when our strength fails, the Lord's strength never fails. His strength is perfected and sufficient in our weakness. We can also learn that trials serve to enhance our ability to worship and rejoice outside of circumstances. In Job one twenty one, Job said, The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So as we suffer trials, we need to take on this mindset of Job that the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. The Lord is ordaining this trial and still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Suffering helps us to worship the Lord outside of our circumstances. Ultimately, Trials are necessary because they refine us. We'll look at this in a few moments in verse 7, but trials refine us. They burn away the dross of the world. They fix our eyes. They take our eyes off of the temporary and fix them on the eternal. They, they take these desires of the world, these things that are even sometimes good gifts of the Lord, they, they take our eyes off of those things and move our gaze to our Savior, to our God, to our eternal home. So when might trials be necessary? Because Peter says if necessary. When might they be necessary? Well, realistically, trials can be necessary in your life and in my life at any and every moment. That is not for you to determine. It's not for me to determine. God uses trials to make us holy and we do not attain perfect holiness until we reach eternity. So what that means is that any given point of your life, the Lord could bring a trial to and upon you to make you more holy. And frankly, friends, I say that with a lot of trepidation. You may hear that with fear or with anxiety because you then have this kind of black cloud that can hang over and around your life to think about that there could be a trial at any time, but we have to control our minds by Scripture. We have to take captive our thoughts to the truth of Scripture. God promises that His grace is sufficient in our weakness. So while, yes, a trial could come when you walk out these doors this morning, an unexpected trial may be waiting on your doorstep when you get home this afternoon, that cannot paralyze us in fear because God's grace is sufficient in those times of weakness. Peter gives a third description. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That term various is important. It means diverse or unique. And so when you think about the diverse and unique trials that come in life, what that ultimately should tell us, as we remember that 
trials pass through the hand of the Lord before they come upon us and that God is intimately involved in our lives, when you know that trials are unique, you know that God has brought them to you for a specific purpose. The difficulty you are facing today is a difficulty that the Lord has known about for all eternity and has said, for you, dear saint, this is the trial for this season because you will learn to walk with me. You will be taken away from the cares and concerns and desires of this world and you will be made to be more like Christ. You know, there's something oddly comforting in knowing that your trial is unique. You know, when we suffer, oftentimes we want to find somebody that's been through something similar because there's that, that ability to relate when, when a fellow saint has suffered a similar um, issue or trial or tribulation. And, and that's good. There, there's nothing wrong with that because oftentimes they can share with you what the Lord has taught them. And, and in doing that, you can learn more quickly what the Lord has for you to learn in that trial. But there's something comforting and knowing that the Lord has this trial marked out for you and you alone. Because this trial you walk through in such a way that you draw strength from God and God alone. Your trial is not for you and everyone else in the church. Of course it is, right? We bear one another's burdens. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. But there's a level in your affliction where the only answer that you have, the only way that you can be molded into Christ is for you to get alone with the Lord and for the Lord to sanctify you. I can't sanctify you. Your spouse can't sanctify you. Your best friend cannot sanctify you. Only the Lord can do that, and that is his ultimate purpose in our suffering, is to make us more like Christ. Peter says rejoice. Not only rejoice, he says rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly because you have this hope in Christ. You rejoice not because your trial is joyful, but because the God of the trial, the God who redeemed you, who has set you apart for eternal salvation, that God is good. He is kind. And he is faithful. Your circumstances may not be good. They may not produce a lot of happiness, a lot of good feelings. But the God of the storm is good and faithful. So now, moving to verse 7, just as God is faithful to us through trials, we see another exhortation from Peter. In verse 7, he said to rejoice greatly in trials and to remain faithful through trials. Look at verse 7. He says that so that, these trials are so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we kind of have to take a step back. You, when you read Peter, uh, typically the point is clear. What, what he wants you to see, what the Lord wants you to see through the writing is clear. But Peter's writing is often kind of clunky. He, he's not often concise. He writes really long sentences with a lot of commas and when it's translated to English. And it can be difficult to, to understand at times. And, and so I want to slow down and think about what's going on right here. Um, 
it's clear that there's a comparison. There's an illustration here. He talks about our faith being more precious than gold. The gold is refined by fire, and our faith is likewise refined, in a sense, by fire. So the illustration is clear, but kind of getting from A to B to C in this illustration to some application implications, we've got to slow down. We've got to think and reason through what is being said here. So he asks the question, how is gold refined? Just as Peter says, gold is refined by fire. Gold is tested, it is refined, it is purified, and it is proven by process of fire and extreme heat. You can go home and verify that on the internet, that that gold is melted down, the impurities will rise to the surface or fall out to the bottom, and then you will have a more pure lump of gold after it's heated down and melted. That's the process of refining gold. But Peter points out to us, gold is perishable. It will be burned up. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says that one day the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So gold is perishable. It is refined and purified by fire but it will be burned up. It will not last. So now, when you really slow down and think about it, what Peter's getting at with our faith here starts to come into view a little bit, starts to come into focus. If something perishable like gold is refined and purified and proven and tested by fire, why would something as precious as eternal saving faith not follow a similar path. Hear John Calvin on this. He said, For if gold, which is a corruptible metal, is deemed of so much value that we prove it by fire, that it may become really or more valuable, Calvin says, What wonder is it that God should require similar trials as to our faith, since faith is deemed by him to be so excellent? If perishable things are tested by fire, why would our eternal saving faith not face the same type? Obviously, it doesn't mean that you're going through a literal fire. You may. But by the same idea of of intense heat, intense pressure, and intense proving in your life, if faith is so great and valuable, why would it not be proven in a similar method? So we ask the question then, why in regards to believers, why in regards to believers would the Lord take something that is so precious to him, his his people, his redeemed people, why would he take something so precious to the proving fires of trials? Why would the Lord do that? And really the answer is right there in the question. Because we are so precious to the Lord, he will do whatever necessary to bring you from life on earth to the point and completion of your salvation. You say, so my worth to the Lord is why I suffer. Yes, it is. The Lord brings your trials to pull you away from the concerns and the cares of the world. The Lord allows suffering so that you will see him as all the more glorious, so that you will draw nearer to him, 
so that his nearness will be your good. Not the nearness of whatever prized possession you have in this world, but the nearness of your God and your Savior. While life is going smoothly, faith, I think, in a sense, for the believer is easy. When you're in Christ and when there's not hardship, and there are periods of life in God's grace where, where the pressures are taken off a little bit. And when life is going easy, faith is easy and natural. You have been given that new nature. You love the Lord and you want to love the Lord and you want to obey Him. So in those times, your faith is easy. It flows naturally in your life. But when trials come, when, when the Lord allows suffering in your life, that's when faith becomes your anchor. That's when your genuine faith is proven because you have nothing left to hold to. You have nothing left to which you cling. You cling only to Christ. Just as the fiery furnace will melt away the impurities in precious metals, so too do the fires of trial melt away the excesses of our lives that try to cling to us and limit our faith. Fires prove the worth of gold. They, they purify gold, and the fires of trial purify your life. When you have nothing else to cling to, you don't want the things of the world. When your life is falling apart, you don't care about how much money you make or what, uh, how nice of a car you drive or how nice your home may be. When the world crashes in, all you have to hold to is Christ. And Christ is enough. He is enough. So what is the result of this tested faith? Continuing on in verse 7, he says that even though this gold is tested by fire, it may be found to your faith, then may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is, again, where if I could talk to Peter and the Holy Spirit when this has been writing, I would like to say, could you expand on this a little bit? Well, what is he getting at? And I think, ultimately, this phrase really points to the praise and honor and the glory that the believers will know and share with Christ in eternity. So yes, you do glorify God in your trials, but Peter's even going a step beyond that to saying that the faith that is proven and the fires and trial result in your praise and your honor and your glory. Not in this life. You will know none of those things in this life. But you will share those things with Christ in eternity. Peter writes at the end of this epistle in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, he says that one day Christ the chief shepherd will appear and he will have to give a, an unfading crown of glory. That is what we will receive. And so that's what Peter has in mind here, that unfading crown of glory that you will one day receive in heaven with Christ. Matthew Henry says about this, that Jesus Christ will appear again in glory. And when he does so, the saints will appear with him. And their graces will appear illustrious. And the more that they have been tried, the more brightly they will then appear. The trial will soon be over, but
but the glory and honor and praise will last to eternity. The trial will soon be over. Now, soon might be 80 years, but 80 years is but the blink of an eye in regard and in respect to the millions of years in eternity that you will spend with Christ. The trial will soon be over, but the glory and honor and praise will last for eternity. So friends, we must remain faithful in trials. You feel the pressure. You feel the, the tumult in your, in your life, in your heart, in your stomach. You feel the tension and the hardship. But dear friends, remain faithful. Stand firm. Peter continues on. He kind of follows this progressive and logical path. He said, rejoice greatly through your trials. Remain faithful through your trials, and then reveal your love through trials. Reveal who you love as you walk through the fire of trials. Look at verse 8. It says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What is the undergirding strength to our stand in times of trial? What is it that builds up our faith and proves and increases our faith as we walk through trials? Well, surely it is God. It is the Lord. It is His grace. But in return, our side of that equation is that we love Him, that we are driven by love for our Lord and Savior. If you do not love the Lord, if you do not have a growing and increasing love for the Lord, when the trials of life come, you will crumble. You will collapse because you don't have an anchor. You cannot increase in faith in that which you do not love. Now, in thinking about the idea of love, we have to, I think, consider some of the context here and consider who is writing this epistle. We talked a little bit about Peter's life last week, and I want to do a little bit more background discussion on, on Peter before he wrote this. Peter, you know, was a close disciple of Christ, and he fell greatly. He denied knowing Christ, and surely in, in that denied loving Christ, right? If he said, I don't know him, surely he would have said, I don't love him because I don't even know him. But there was a restoration of the Lord that, that Jesus did in Peter's life. Turn back with me to John 21. John chapter 21, this is probably a passage that you may know from heart. You, you certainly understand and know the idea, but let's put these words of Scripture before our eyes and, and consider what happens with the idea of love for the Apostle Peter. John 21 verse 15 says, When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus then said to Peter, tend my lambs. Jesus said a second time to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved this time because the Lord said to him the third time, do you love me? 
And Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. The passage continues on. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And now this, Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus is preparing Peter for the fires and the trials of his life. He is restoring him to active ministry. And how does he do it? But asking Peter, do you love me? Didn't ask him once, didn't ask him twice. He asked him three times, do you love me? Peter said, yes, yes, Lord, yes, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus, of course, he knew all things. But at that point, Jesus says, okay, Peter, you're ready. You are, you are recommissioned. Now, you will go and you will minister and you will come to the end of your life and you will be girded, you will be strapped to a tree, you will have nails piercing your hands and your feet, and you will be crucified, and by that you will glorify God. But you will remain, Peter, because you love me. You will stand firm because you love me. Your love will fuel an increasing and remaining faith. If you do not love the Lord, your faith is nothing. If you do not grow and increase in your love for your Savior, you do not have saving faith. Faith produces repentance. Repentance produces one who walks with Christ, and the one who walks with Christ will love Christ. So if you are going to walk faithfully through trials... You must reveal the one you love. Your love fuels faith. Your faith, in turn, fuels love. They work together. It's like a wheel that continues to spin, love-producing faith, faith-producing love. And in all that, you walk in obedience. You walk with the Lord. You know his presence. You know his grace. You know his goodness. And you remain through trials. And amazingly, Peter points out here, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him, and you do not see him now, but you believe in him. This is a love and a faith that are not fueled by sight, but by truth. Our faith is not driven by sight, but rather it is driven by truth. Our love is not driven by by our emotions. Our love is driven by the truth of who God is and what he has done, and our love is driven by our devotion to him because of his grace and his kindnesses toward us. And the result of this truth-driven faith and love, Peter says, is a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. It's a joy essentially that you cannot even put into words. It's a joy that overflows out of who you are. And it is a joy that is ultimately glorified. This is a a perfect tense verb full of glory. So it speaks to something that is and will be accomplished. 
Your joy is being accomplished by the Lord. Before we move forward, I'll just say this kind of in way of application. We must do our part to fuel this faith and love for the Lord. Faith in and love for the Lord. The fuel of this is to consider what has been done for you. And yes, you can sit alone in the quiet and just think about what Christ has done. And and that's good and you should do that. You should consider the graces of Christ in that way. But let me encourage you to fuel your faith and your love to give and devote time to God's Word, to worshiping Him, to communing with your fellow saints. If you want to be devoted to the Lord, you devote yourself to Him in your time, and you devote yourself to being with His people. So we must do our part. The Lord will supply the grace and will grant the growth, but we must do our part. Spend time considering what the Lord has done for you. Consider the grace that you know in Christ. Consider the good news of the gospel that the holy and only Son of God came to the earth. He laid aside these privileges of glory that were His. He came to the earth. He took on the form of a human, the humans that he himself had created. He lived that perfect life, sinless perfection, perfect obedience, only to go to the cross. He went to the cross to bear your sin. He went to the cross because you deserve eternal punishment. He went to the cross because there is a price to pay for sin, and he paid it. He drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank it down to the very dregs. He drank it down to every last drop. He drank God's wrath so fiercely that he cried out on that cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then he also said, It is finished. The work is done. The price has been paid in full. Dear friends, you consider that. You consider what Christ has done. And if you have the Holy Spirit of God living in your heart, it will fuel love for and faith in Christ. Now finally, we come to verse 9. We've seen these three exhortations. Rejoice greatly. Remain faithful. Reveal your love all through your trials. Then in verse 9, Peter gives this kind of summary, this crescendo, command, exhortation, encouragement to receive salvation through trials. In verse 9, he says, You greatly rejoice, at the end of verse 8, You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of joy, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That is the result of rejoicing and remaining and revealing your love through trials. You receive, as the outcome of that tried and proven true faith, you receive eternal salvation. You are proven to be God's child, and you will be brought to be with Him forever and ever.
just kind of summarize and, and skip to the end. I know we've been a little bit long this morning. Consider the command of Christ as we think about rejoicing in trials. Matthew chapter 6, verse um, 20 and 21. Jesus said there, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The world is corrupted. The things of this world are corruptible. And they will be brought to nothing. But our inheritance, the, the reward of our salvation is stored up and is kept in heaven by the Lord. Dear friends, loose yourself from the cares and the pleasures and the desires of this world. They will not satisfy Look to the things of this world that you love, that you crave, that you just can't even take your mind off of. Look to those things, and as Paul would say, count them all as rubbish, as trash. Throw all these, those things away for the sake of knowing Christ your Lord. Go to Christ and receive salvation. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart. Your heart follows your treasure. Your treasure reveals your heart. So do you have your greatest treasure in the things of this world? Or is your greatest treasure in Christ? Do you find your greatest hope in the fact that he went to the cross and died so that you could be forgiven of your sins? In this world you will have tribulation. But Jesus said, take heart. Be of good courage because I have overcome the world. Not only has Christ overcome the world, but as we said at the outset, he is our great high priest. He knows and sympathizes with our weakness and he calls us to come to his throne of grace with boldness ready and eager to receive help in our great time of need. He told Paul in 2 Corinthians, Jesus did, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Peter then responded, and may this be our hearts. Peter said, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Dear friends, may we be weak for the sake of being made strong in and by Christ. May we obtain as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. May we rejoice greatly in our trials, knowing that they are fleeting and passing, and our inheritance is reserved and kept and forever. May our only boast be in Christ. May your joy and your hope and your fulfillment be in Christ alone, because 
all the pleasures, all the treasures of this world will never satisfy. Christ alone is endless and eternal joy. May we live in such a way as to magnify the Lord's glory, even through trials. And may we live in such a way as to accomplish his purposes for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again today for your word, for its truth is, is really uncomparable. The truth of your word is glorious and good, and it brings and gives life. Lord, would you give and impart life to us through your truth this day? Lord, would you sustain those? There are dear saints, dear brothers and sisters who are walking through dark and heavy roads of trial. Lord, our request this day would be that they would be filled to the fullness with the goodness of Christ. I pray that your grace would be sufficient for each one of them, that your power would be perfected in their time of weakness. I pray that you would help those suffering and help us all to rejoice greatly in the various distresses and trials of life. May our love be increased for Christ. May our faith grow and be proven to be genuine. And then as we walk for the years, however, however long you have for us to remain on this earth, may we walk faithfully so that we will one day receive as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in and through us all today. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.